A church, like a family, must be nourished in the Word of God because God knows a church does not grow simply by addition, but also by nutrition. And it's tragic to see so many pastors in our day involved in so many other things than being involved in the most important thing, and that's to give the people the Word on God's day. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures. A daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of 1 Timothy, a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the pastor at the church at Ephesus. Paul realizes that God places a large amount of responsibility on pastors. And as such, he sought to impart wise counsel to Timothy in the caring and nurturing of his flock. Today, more than ever, it is critical that pastors teach sound doctrine and that they impart to their congregation the unvarnished Word of God. But we are finding with increasing measure that churches around the world are abandoning God's Word as the standard of living and tickling the ears of those in attendance. Let's rejoin Pastor Carl now as he takes a look at what it takes to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to speak on the subject, A Good Servant of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but when Jesus Christ comes back, I hope he will be able to say to me, Well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want to be found as a good servant of Christ Jesus. And our passage this morning tells us how. Now, before I read our text, let me set it in its context. If you've read through this epistle a number of times, you know that it divides into four major sections. The first section comprises chapters 1 through 3. And in that section, we see the church and its members. In chapter 1, Paul made it explicitly clear that true pastors, unlike false teachers, are to teach the Word of God. The Word of God is to rule the church. In chapter 2, he gave some very explicit instruction on how the church should worship. Who and when should prayer take place in the fellowship? And for that matter, who should teach and preach the Word of God? And we looked at that most controversial question of this decade. Can women be pastors of local churches? And we discovered that Paul's answer was absolutely not. There are no pastorettes in the New Testament church. For that matter, Paul even said, a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over a man, even in any kind of a mixed group. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman is any less equal, and we study that in great depth. But it does mean that God has made us differently, that God has a different function and role for ladies in the church as He does for men. And then in chapter 3, He logically proceeded to go on and give us some of the qualifications of overseers and deacons. And then in those... Um, in our, in our last section, we examined very carefully the implications that those qualifications have even on us who may not serve in that office. Now when we come to this next section, we move to the church and its uh, minister. And in this section, we discover that a good minister of God is to preach the Word. A godly minister is to practice the Word. And a growing minister is to progress in the Word of God. And so I want to speak to you this morning about the subject of becoming a good minister, a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, while he's speaking directly to pastors, I want to remind you that this section is pregnant with truth for all of us. Let's follow along. If you don't have a Bible, the Scripture is before you on the screen. 
in front. Let's uh, follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 4, now in verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. But I have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Alan Emery, the former chairman of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, wrote a classic book in the the 70s called A Turtle on a Fence Post. And in the opening chapter of this book, Alan Emery writes these words. He said, One morning I picked up Dr. Robert Lamont to drive him to a meeting. He was flying in from Pittsburgh, where at the time he was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. In the relaxed drive from Hamilton, he spoke of his work in such a way that I felt he viewed himself as a spectator of what God had done through his ministry. I suggested that much of what had been accomplished must must be because of his gifts and talents. He replied, Alan... While I was a schoolboy, we would occasionally see a turtle on a fence post. When we did, we knew someone had put him there. He didn't get there by himself. That's how I see my own life. I'm a turtle on a fence post. Ladies and gentlemen, God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Paul, when he wrote the Corinthian church, reminded them of that truth. He said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who was slaughtered with four others in 1956 for preaching the gospel, succinctly defined missionaries as, quote, a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Well, one of those nobodies, one of those turtles on a fence post was a man named Timothy. Let me remind you what Timothy was like. In the first place, he was a young man. Now, young is relative because people are young in relationship to your own age, typically. I mean, I remember when I thought 46 was over the hill and old. But it's significant that Paul would refer to Timothy as a young man in this first epistle because he spoke that in a society unlike ours that celebrated age. And it tells me much about Timothy because God placed him in a position of responsibility far beyond his own natural abilities. Paul had assigned Timothy to be a pastor of pastors. And his tendency, as brought out in these two epistles, was at times to shrink from this. This man, according to most Bible scholars, was probably in his mid to late 30s. 
He had been associated with the Apostle Paul for about 15 years. He accompanied him on both his first and second missionary journeys. In fact, it's interesting to note that in half of all Paul's letters in the New Testament, in some way he references Timothy. Now, this man was great, and he was greatly used of the Lord, and yet he was young. But not only was he a young man, in the second place, Timothy was weak physically. He was prone to illness. When we come to the fifth chapter, Paul's going to refer to his frequent ailments. Timothy had some kind of gastrointestinal problem. He was probably not an Arnold Schwarzenegger. If anything, he was probably more like a tiny Tim. He was not the, the typical stereotype that we might have of a leader. In the third place, Timothy was a shy individual. He was timid by temperament. He was a rather passive person. If we were to tab him psychologically, we'd probably say he was an introvert. But you can't read these letters without realizing that Timothy, though young and shy, was often intimidated. In fact, when he was placed in a confrontational setting, it appears that his tendency was to run. Anybody identify with Timothy? Young, weak, shy? If you've ever asked, can God use that kind of person? The answer comes with this man. So if you have your Bible open to 1 Timothy 4, I want us to examine this morning three principles on becoming a man or a woman of character. Three principles for becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul recognized that God wanted to take this timid, shy, scared-to-death individual and galvanize him for the cause of Jesus Christ. And while these principles especially apply to those of us who've been called into full-time pastoral ministry, they also apply to you. For instance, Timothy is called to preach and teach the word, but so are you. Hebrews 5.12 says that one of the marks that you are a growing, maturing Christian is that you can take your Bible and teach and help others as they ask you questions. In addition, we've already learned that a pastor, among other things, is to be an example to the flock. And so there's something here for you to follow. Not to mention that at some time in your life, you may be called upon by God to serve in the process of calling a pastor or even starting a new church somewhere. And that's a sacred responsibility, and you need to know very clearly what it is that God has called you to look for. Now, the very first thing I want you to notice in becoming a man of character is that a good servant of Christ Jesus will preach the Word. A pastor's relationship to the written Word of God is critically important, not just to his own spiritual health, but also to the health of the church in which he's called to shepherd. So here in verses 6 through 11, Paul gives us several principles as he unfolds the pastor's relationship to the Word of God. First, a good pastor will nourish himself on sound doctrine. If I am to be a good pastor, I must nourish myself on sound doctrine. Look at verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine you have been following. Now, of course, these things point back to the preceding paragraph that he has just spoken. For instance, in verse 1, he said, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's the theme of the prior paragraph. The Holy Spirit expressly teaches that in the last days, especially the last of the last days before Christ comes again, that there will be teachers in churches, in pulpits, that are actually teaching doctrines of demons. 
Now, they may not know that their doctrines, their teachings have demonic origins, but Timothy, as a pastor, was to nourish himself on the Word of God so that he might in turn alert the people of God to the apostasy around them. God's people need to be warned about false, false doctrine and religious apostasy. And the plumb line by which you're able to do that is the Bible. David Mills, the senior editor of Touchstone, a magazine as it's called for mere Christianity, writes these insightful words. Concerning false teachers, he says that they proclaim a Jesus who does not exist and thereby endanger the souls of men who want to meet him. The Jesuses they present almost always look a lot like the real Jesus, especially to those who do not know him very well. Men of this sort are almost always compelling teachers who offer a Jesus designed to be what many of their hearers expect or want. The successful heretic knows how to design his product to sell in the religious market, and many people will like his Jesus a lot more than the real one. People who are so good at offering the world a fake Jesus must be rebuked and corrected by those pastors who have the gifts to do so. They will sometimes have to speak a hard word in the mode of Polycarp. If you don't know who Polycarp is, he was one of the early church fathers in the second century. And he was very straightforward and very careful to follow this admonition that Paul gave to Timothy to guard and shepherd the flock from false doctrine. On one occasion, he called a heretic by the name of Marcion the firstborn of Satan. In either case, pastors will sometimes have to explain that Smith is wrong that Smith is a false teacher, that he is an enemy of the faith. That is the way they must minister to those who are under their care. The pastor will mainly lead his sheep to water and grass, but he will also speak to guard them from the wolves. He must teach them about wolves and point out as many as he can. But then Mills warns the faithful pastor who will be obedient to this call of God, but as soon as you do this, you'll find yourself criticized even in conservative Christian circles. You'll find yourself called unkind, arrogant, and uncharitable, or divisive, troublemaking, an impediment to mission, one with poor people skills, or harsh and strident or simple-minded. You will hear this from Christians who agree that pastors must stand against error, though they themselves shrink from the battle. You may be told that you attract more flies with honey than vinegar. I've been told this more than once by men who thought they were being profound or wise or something. They assume that all such discourse must be aimed at the conversion of the heretic, that the only way to convert him is to speak nicely to him. They have, they have no good reason, however, in Scripture or in the example of the church fathers for such an idea. The Christian pastor, pastor must sometimes speak against the enemies of the faith, but he will suffer abuse in doing so. He may have to say a hard word when almost everyone wants him to say the soft word. Yet the hard word is sometimes the godly word, even if it appears to others, including one's friends, as harsh, divisive, or simple-minded. And so Paul tells Timothy, a pastor is to point out these things, whether people want to hear them or not. But a pastor cannot possibly point out these things if he himself does not have his own steady nourishment from the scriptures. A good servant is nourished, he says, on the words of the faith. Now that's the part of the pastor's life that you cannot see. That's the part that only God can see. But that is to be true not just of a pastor, but of every Christian. Remember Jeremiah the prophet? He described his relationship to the word and he said, thy words were found and I ate them. 
and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Jesus also taught us in the New Testament, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the Apostle Peter exhorted us to be like newborn babes who long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. We are to nourish ourselves on the word of God because God knows that the people of God must be nourished on the word of God. And so it's not surprising that he likens his word to food, to meat, to milk, to honey, to bread, because we need to feed on it. And if the last time you fed on your Bible was last Sunday, it explains why you have such a sickly Christian life. You need to meditate on the truth of Holy Scripture. But it's critically important that a pastor do that as well. A pastor must nourish himself on good doctrine or he will never be able to lead God's church. Now, the same applies just not for me who pastors a church, but it applies for you who may shepherd a family or disciple some other individual. And if last year was going to be like this year is, if last year you didn't spend time with the Lord, and if last week you didn't, well, I fear that you'll never head in the direction that God wants you to live. God said, which Jesus called the greatest commandment when he gathered all the fathers together, he said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. I can tell you, if you're not spending time being nourished on the Word of God, God's Word will never be in your heart. You'll never be able to teach your kids and others that God gives you to disciple as you walk in the way, as you lie down, as you rise up. I mean, godly kids don't just happen. You cannot impart to them something that is not first true in your own life. And if your kids grow up to be unbelievers or lukewarm for God, you will have absolutely no one to blame but yourself. A church like a family, must be nourished in the Word of God because God knows a church does not grow simply by addition, but also by nutrition. And it's tragic to see so many pastors in our day involved in so many other things than being involved in the most important thing, and that's to give the people the Word on God's day. So a good pastor will nourish himself on sound doctrine. Second, a good pastor will also discipline himself against false doctrine. He'll discipline himself against false doctrine. Verse 7, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, as you can see, Paul is shifting gears here to an athletic illustration to drive home not just what God wants the man of God to do, but what he wants all of us to do. And he speaks not just in the negative realm, but also in the positive realm. Negatively, he says in verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Just as a Greek or Roman athlete had to refuse certain things in his diet, just as he had a very disciplined regimen of exercise, even so, a pastor must discipline himself against evil. 
Now, the word discipline that's found twice in verses 7 and 8 is the word gymnasia. We get our word gymnasium from it. Paul is using the language of the gym to encourage Timothy to exercise spiritual discipline against evil. Now, if the average Christian were to put as much energy and discipline into his spiritual life as an athlete does in seeking a temporal goal, he would mature much faster and be used much greater by God in this lifetime. But he speaks here of worldly fables. The old King James translates them profane. It's the Greek word babelos. It means godless, irreligious, and it's used of someone or something that is just worldly. For instance, Esau in Hebrews 12 is called a Babylon man. He's a godless man. He's a profane man. He's a worldly man. And in this context, Paul is using it to describe the false fable-like teachings of a false teacher. These doctrines that they had had absolutely no basis in Scripture. It's the kind of thing that silly people would give themselves to, not dedicated men in the Word of God. Paul will warn Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.4 about these same fables. He's already addressed it in chapter 1 and verse 4 of this letter, not to give heed to fables and to endless genealogies. And so while a pastor must know what the enemy is teaching, neither is he to be absorbed in it. He's kind of like a chemist who has to handle and study the poisons, but neither is he allowed of those poisons to ingest in his own system. You say, well, praise the Lord, we don't have those kind of fables today. This is obviously a thing of the past. Oh, no, they're not. The Spirit explicitly said this would be true in the last days. The only difference is that they're repackaged differently in the 21st century than they were in the 1st century. The same kind of worldly teaching is presented every night on the television, in talk shows. It's a philosophy of life that is permeating the university campus of our day. There are messages about morality, about sexuality, about the family, and a host of other issues that are diametrically opposed to Scripture. And if you listen long enough, it will infect your thinking. You know, some of you are watching those godless talk shows And if what I read in the American Family Association magazine is true, I want to tell you, they are dangerous. Because as you watch them long enough, I want to tell you, you put some seeds in your heart, you put some godless, profane, worldly fables there, and it will ultimately work itself out in your life and in your family. And so God tells us, that we are not to be impacted by fables, but by truth. And so he says, on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I know what some of you are thinking when you read that verse. You say, I knew it was somewhere here in the Bible. I knew there was a verse somewhere that basically excused me from an exercise program. Listen, now Paul is writing in the first century during a time in human history where in many ways there was a built-in exercise program. You didn't uh, drive your automobile to church. You didn't wash your clothes in the washer. You didn't uh, turn on the furnace to eat your home. Life in many ways was one big exercise program for the average person. Not to mention that in the Greek and Roman cultures, not all that different from our own day, because people were so captivated with the sensual realm, there were people who worshipped literally the body. 
And such people needed to be reminded that in terms of real profit, in terms of what really matters in life, bodily discipline is only of little profit. Yes, you need to take care of your body, and exercise may be a part of that care. Our bodies are God's temples, and they're to be used for His glory. Our bodies are God's tools. They are to be used for His service. But bodily exercise benefits this life only, whereas godly exercise benefits not only this life, but the life to come. Now, all the exercise I did last week brought little benefit. It was short-lived. Though if I stop, I'll turn into a hunk of blubber before long. Well... But the spiritual exercises I did last week, I want to tell you, that had profit, not just for last week, but for next week and for the life to come. So Paul is not dichotomizing the two. He's not saying, Timothy, care for the soul and neglect to your body. He's not saying you need to make a choice between the two, but he's reminding Timothy that if you are to be a good pastor, you must discipline yourself against godless fables that are fit only for old superstitious women. Paul wants to remind Timothy that the conduct and character that is important in a pastor will far outweigh any of the trophies this world may give. That your home run record, your golf tournament trophy, the lower wraith that you'd get in the first century is so small compared to the kind of laurels that God would want to give. We are to live, we are to labor, we are to train in light of eternity. And when you see an athlete training, you should be reminded that all of the sweat and all that he expends to put himself into condition is the same kind of motivation that you and I need to have in the spiritual realm. I need to discipline myself in terms of spending time in the Word of God, in terms of being alone with God in prayer, in terms of winning people to Jesus Christ, in terms of fellowshipping with the people of God, if I, by the Spirit of God, am going to become a more godly person. And while in the realm of spirituality we exercise these disciplines, I want to tell you they will prove neither useless nor unfruitful, not in this life, but also in the life to come. And so he adds quickly, verse 9, which connects, by the way, to verse 8. It looks back at verse 8. This, what I've just said, is a trustworthy statement, and it deserves your full acceptance. And so Paul is saying, look, if you will live this way, it will help you, it will help believers to whom you minister, but it will even help unbelievers. So he goes on to explain in verse 10. For it is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Paul says, I'm laboring and striving for my hope that is the guarantee of something that God's going to bring about in the future that relates to the living God, that relates to the eternal and not the temporal. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God. But then he adds that interesting phrase, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Tomorrow we'll see that this verse has been incorrectly understood and taught by many liberal theologians who teach that all men will be saved. On the contrary, God's Word clearly addresses a place called hell where unbelievers will spend an eternity in agony separated from God. To listen again to today's message entitled, A Good Servant of Jesus Christ, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and requesting program 1TM10. And when you contact us, won't you consider supporting the work of Search the Scriptures? Our goal is to reach as many as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ through our radio and worldwide web services. But we can't do it alone. Please pray how you might become a Search the Scriptures partner, then call 877-787-7478 or visit searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we continue our look at being a good servant of Jesus Christ. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.